Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 5 tonight. Um, this is, uh, if, if you gave uh, me, and not that I would deserve that kind of platform, if you gave me the opportunity to preach to any number of churches, all the churches in America, um, I think the subject we're going to approach tonight is probably one of, one of the most important that needs to be addressed in our day, in our age. And it's not a new subject or not, it's not a new issue. Uh, we're talking about a, a book and, a, and a, um, an event that took place um, <laughs> over 3,000 years ago. So the subject that was relevant for them is still relevant for us, which should show you as much as the world has changed at the center of it, at the core of our problems, they're pretty much the same thing that's this stirring and brewing and, and causing so much unrest. Um, this is going to be a message, and, and I, I don't do this to pick on anybody, but there, this is going to be a message where you're going to hear it and you're going to think, wow, they really need to hear this. But let's, let's not be so quick to deflect it from uh, what we may not think uh, is, is addressed to us, but I just think that at the core of all of our struggles, at the core of all of our temptation, is, is the thing that we're going to talk about tonight or the sin that we're going to talk about tonight. And, and we're, going to, we're going to learn a lot um, about, uh, about who God is. We're also going to learn a lot about who God is not or what God is not like. And sometimes um, to know what something is, you have to know what it's not. And you have to be able to define and, and distinguish between what is and isn't. So uh, if you found your place, 1 Samuel 5, what we're going to do actually read through this uh, story. It's, it's not very long. Um, if you were with us last week, um, Israel and the Philistines come together for a great battle. Israel loses uh, and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant captive and they take it with them back to Philistia to one of their, um, one of their main cities uh, called Ashdod. So that's kind of the background. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But I want to go ahead and read the story. It's a really unique story, and it's one that you've probably heard before, uh, but it's one that's going to really inspire a lot of different, um, a lot of good conversation tonight. So uh, God's Word says uh, in 1 Samuel 5, verse 1, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon, or in front of him. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, the priest, uh, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And he ravaged them and he struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. Therefore, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was that after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And so it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. 
So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout the city, all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So a very unfortunate situation, as uh, an understatement, um, that was caused by a, a, a mishandling, a misunderstanding of God, yet that really all started with the children of Israel. So if you're with us last week, 1 Samuel 4 talks about how Israel was defeated in a battle against the Philistines. We took the opportunity to focus on the, dis- the disconnect between Israel and the understanding of God and how they misunderstood God. So before the Philistines misunderstood God and mishandled God, the Israelites, the people who knew better, they misunderstood and they mishandled God, which led to a humiliating defeat. Remember, they were facing this uphill battle, so they had an idea. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield. Let's roll the Ark in, and God's going to be obligated to take care of us. Because when we bring the Ark in, we're bringing God in because His presence dwells in the ark or on the ark, over the ark. So we are basically guaranteeing ourselves victory by the way they understood God. Now, clearly they had a poor understanding of God, which is what we talked about last week. So they understood God, uh, that he lived in this box. Now, it was, not, it was more than a box. It was very finely crafted. We talked about that from the book of, of, of Exodus. Um, but, but the way they understood, God lives in a box. Much like genies live in bottles, God lives in this box. So God is malleable. God will do what we want him to do. God will do what we bid him to do. If we go through the right motions and we you know, do the right protocol and the right rituals, then God's got to show up and God God's got to save us. Well, that didn't work out, did it? Obviously, it didn't. They were, they were very uh, foolish, and they lost in a very uh, foolish way. The moral of the story for us is that God's hand cannot be forced. God will not be manipulated. God is to be trusted and surrendered to. He is not wished upon. He is not, he is not controlled. Now, the reason I think this is very relevant is why we could do, and why we could do a whole other message on this subject with other scriptures to back it up, is because many people, many Christians or professing Christians have a similar understanding of God as the Jews did in 1 Samuel 4. They, or we, many of us in our time, in our lives, we have devolved God or brought God or reduced God down to where we, we see him as a cosmic vending machine. Now, you know what a vending machine is. You go in, you put a dollar in, you get, or maybe more than a dollar nowadays. You put a dollar and a half in, or you put two dollars in, you get a drink out, right? You go to a, 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 a vending machine that has food or has candy or has any number of things inside of it. If you put the right money in, you hit the right buttons, the vending machine is got to give you something. And unfortunately, and, and, and a lot of times this happens subtly and, and people, we don't realize that we're, we're, we're taking God in this direction, which God cannot be taken in any direction, right? God is who he is, but we, we, we change the image of God and we change the, 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 the truth about God. Christians still do this with God. Some people only do things for God because they expect him to respond in a greater way right? There are some people, the only reason they give or serve or do anything is because they expect God to pay them back. 
Now listen, God is a good God. He's a God that makes promises. He does good things for his children, but he is not in the negotiating business. There, isn't, there are Old Testament passages, Old Covenant passages that people twist into making God seem as if he is able to be manipulated. But the New Testament makes it very clear that that, that, that is not this selfish, shallow, man-centered view of God is not biblical. Uh, if that's how we understand God, if we've molded God to our own image, then that's why Israel lost that's why we, in our own faith, will struggle if we attempt to manipulate God. God is not a vending machine. He is not a slot machine. You know what God is? You know who God is? God is a king. God's a king. A big different than a slot machine. Big different than a vending machine. God is a king. He is on heaven's throne. We surrender to him. And what is our prayer to him? Thy will be done, right? We don't go to God and cross our arms and say, God, I did X, Y, and Z. You are obligated to do this for me. God is a king who says, I love you. I will do the best for you. I am a good shepherd. I am a good father. But he is not to be negotiated with. He is not to be bartered with. He is not manipulated. He is not backed into a corner. He is a king. And our best is found when we surrender to him. You can trust him. If you don't trust him, then you're never gonna know who really the truth about God, but we trust God to get the best from God. Now, again, before anybody mishears me or misquotes me, why do we surrender to God? Because that, because we trust him and we know he's gonna do what's best for us in return. Are there verses in the Bible that, that prove to us how good God is and what God does? Of course there are, but we don't demand to see what's best before we agree to cooperate. We surrender first. That's why we serve. That's why we give. That's why we attend. Because we are, Because the more we put into his hands, the less we are leaning on for our, in our own control. The more of your life you turn over to God, the less you have to worry about. Does that make sense? Uh, Eric had a sign in his room years and years ago that when I turned my life over to God, I took it out of the hands of a fool. The more you hold back from God, the less God is in control of. The more you surrender to God, the more you've taken off of your shoulders and the less pressure that's on you and the more confidence you can have in God. Quite frankly, if we suppose the greatest rewards of serve, for serving God are in this life, then we have cut ourselves short because those rewards don't last I don't want treasures that will fade away. I don't want accolades that will be forgotten. We, I want eternal rewards. So that's why our ears should perk up when we read the story of Israel losing in 1 Samuel 4 because on the surface, it looks like they're doing the right thing or it looks like they're doing something that should work. They bring the God box in and they stand back and wait for God to do as they expect him to do. But you know why they failed? Because they saw God as an object. They saw God as something they could control they set themselves up, and we, if we follow that similar path, we set ourselves up for loss. So God is going to teach Israel a lesson, or does teach Israel a lesson. He allows the ark to be taken captive by the Philistines so that they would learn what it really meant to live by faith. Because for several years, the ark is no longer going to be in the land, so they had no object to point to, which, of course, that's the Christian faith. That's the spirit of Christianity. We live by faith, not by sight. God was kind of showing the Jews what they were supposed to do the whole time anyway. Uh, but it was a hard thing to process for them because they're early on in the re redemption plan. This is early. This is very early stages of the redemption plan. So we, we understand why maybe they didn't get it all right there in the beginning. 
Uh, if you remember from chapter 4, as the ark was carried away, um, the, the saying was, the glory of God has departed from Israel. The glory of God has departed from Israel. Meanwhile, the story that comes immediately after that continues the conversation about attempting to manipulate God because the ark ends up in a pagan temple in the land of the Philistines. Now, here's something that's very important. You've probably already connected these dots in your head. How is Israel understanding God or, or how are they treating God? They're treating him and they're looking at him as if he's nothing but an idol. The way that they were looking at the ark was much like the way the pagans looked at their idols. They had this physical image of God. They carted around, which was obviously not the point of the Ark of the Covenant. They were seeing it as literally God's earthly representation that they could rub and shine and roll out and get God to do what they wanted him to do. But that was never the reason for the Ark. The Ark was supposed to show people the the limitation of the Old Covenant. They needed a better covenant. They needed a Savior. The Ark was supposed to be contained to the holy place where only a few people got to, where they experienced God's presence for the whole nation. But the way they had begun to treat the Ark was as if it was just an idol. I mean, literally, they made it a commodity. They rolled it out onto a battlefield. They were doing something that was very similar to what the pagans did with their idols. So much so, and here's how we know that that, that, uh, the Philistines saw the Jews treating the ark in this way. So when the Philistines captured the ark, what do they do with the ark? They take it and put it in a temple with one of their own idols. Do you see what the, 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 the image there, the image that's going on? They were saying, Israel sees this as their idol. Our God has defeated Israel's God. So they brought in what they thought was an idol because the Jews were treating it like one. They brought in this idol and they set it at the feet of their God. Can you imagine how God felt about the way Israel was treating him and looking at him? When he made it loud and clear that Israel was not supposed to reduce him down to idols. Remember, they were not supposed to have any graven images. They were not supposed to have images of God because they were all made in God's image. We all are in God's image. So we all remind each other of who is our creator. God was not supposed to be reduced down to some trinket, some shrine, some idol. But what was really the goal that God had for Israel the whole time? We looked at this in our study Sunday night. What did God position Israel on the earth to do? To make him known to the rest of the world, right? God told Abraham, I'm gonna use you to make my name known, to bless the world. God told Moses, I'm gonna use this Exodus to make myself known. God told Israel, you are to be a light in a dark world. They reduced him down to nothing but an idol. So Now the Philistines have a poor understanding of God because Israel communicated a poor picture of God. Do you see the through line? The reason the Philistines are being judged and you say, this isn't fair. Well, no, it's not fair, but that's how it works. The reason the Philistines are being judged is because the Israelites failed to communicate God in the right way. And here's why I think this is a big deal. If If you know the Bible... God is very concerned about how we represent him. 
how we bear his image. God, the Bible is full of commandments and warnings that you and I represent the living God. That is not a light thing, a small thing to consider. One of the commandments, one of the commandments addresses this specifically. Exodus 20, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, growing up, I was told this is just this is just this just means you shouldn't use God's name in a flimsy way, which you shouldn't. This means you shouldn't attach curse words to God's name, which you shouldn't. But this ver- this commandment is more than just don't say God's name, literally his name in a flimsy way. You shouldn't do that. You should have respect for the name of God, but this is bigger than that. This is saying you should not misrepresent your God. Because God has put his hand on you. You are a child of God. So if you misrepresent him, who are you making look bad? Parents, you remember telling your kids you go over to somebody's house for Christmas or a party and you would say to your kids, hey, y'all better behave because if y'all do something foolish, you're going to make me look bad. Y'all have heard that before. To use God's name in vain is to claim to be a Christian but not live like one, not act like one. Don't you agree? That yeah, you shouldn't say bad words with God's name. That should be obvious. But that is not just what the commandment means. To misrepresent God is to take God's name and God's calling and God's anointing in vain. All throughout the Bible, God is talking to Israel and and to the church about the importance of representing him. Ezekiel 36 says, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations. Now, why would you think God would be concerned about this? Now, God's not being petty. God's not worried. God doesn't care what you think about him because God's God whether you know him or not. God is not wor- God's not being petty or being narcissistic, right? God is God. He doesn't need you to know him for him to be God. But the point of it is God knows that if Israel didn't make him known, then the rest of the world would stay lost. Do you see what's on the line? When Israel profaned God's name, what did that do for the nations that, were, that, that saw Israel do this? It misled them and made them remain lost. You see where we're going with this? What is Jesus' message to the church? As soon as he starts his ministry, what does he look at his disciples on the, on the mount uh, that he preached the Beatitudes? What does he look at his disciples and say? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not me, I am, of course, but you. I am sending you to be lights and to be preservatives and to be vessels of refuge. You represent me. Don't ever forget that. Philippians 1, 5, Paul says that we are in partnership with the gospel. It's a big deal to be partners with somebody, isn't it? Someone makes you a partner with them in their business, that means that you're, you're a benefactor, benefactor of it. It means you're reaping dividends of it. If you're in partnership with somebody, then that means you're getting benefits from something that maybe it didn't even start with you. If somebody walks up to you and says, hey, I want you to be my partner, that means they're saying, hey, I want you to reap the rewards of something that I started. God says, you're my partner in this. 
Paul goes on later in Philippians 2 and says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you are to shine as lights in the world. Why do we need to be lights in the world? Because without the light, it gets dark. This is why knowing all that you can know about your faith is important. And doing all you can do for Jesus is important. Do you know there's a lot of Christians who sit in church all their life and hardly know anything? They hear sermon after sermon, it goes in one ear out the other. We know what the big sins are that we don't commit, but we couldn't articulate X, Y, and Z for what we, as why we believe and what we should do for nothing. And again, I'm not being critical of anybody. I'm saying that's just, that's just reality. It's a shame that disciples are not more educated and not more disciplined in their faith. So we, we should be able to do, number one, communicate our faith effectively and faithfully live it out. Because you know what's on the line? If we portray God like they portrayed God in 1 Samuel 4, then the, there's an entire group of people who see us and see how we relate to God and they take the torch and they get burnt by it because they didn't see. And you can say, well, that's their fault, not mine. Not according to the Bible. Israel in this instance was not at all effective at displaying or faithful at living out their devotion. So much so, they do a poor job at communicating the Lord and Yahweh. The Philistines think he's just another idol. And what happens in chapter five? They find out that's clearly not the case, don't they? I mean, what did we read? They were playing hopscotch with the the ark. You take it, you take it, you take it, because they were dying. Now you know what God meant by you've profaned my name and the rest of the world is suffering for it? Now, now, let me be very clear. Are individuals accountable for their own actions? Absolutely. Am I the reason someone goes to hell? No. Am I the reason somebody chooses to sin? No. But will I be judged for how I handled and represented God? And will I be judged for, caught, for leading someone astray? Absolutely yes. Both can be true. I'm not the reason somebody's lost. I'm not the reason they choose to do what they do. But will I be judged if I didn't lead them in a better way? Yes, I will. Romans 2.23 says, You who boast in the law, that means you who profess to be believers in God's word, you dishonor God by breaking the law. God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, not you, but maybe you, but he's talking about the believers. So in this story, both Israel's being punished for handling their faith in vain and the Philistines are being punished for failing to represent God on their, for failing to respect God on their own. Both sides are guilty in this instance. What do you think the Philistines thought when they walk in their temple and there they see this idol that they had worshiped on the ground? This mute, lifeless stone that had never budged finally made a move, but not the move they were thinking. It fell on its face and and, and eventually it crumbled. It broke as it was fallen before the presence of God. Can you imagine the hand-wringing the hand-wringing they did to try to get Dagon's attention? Every single day they went into this temple and they tried to get his attention. Remember the story 
of Elijah much years later. Elijah is trying to win the heart of Israel uh, from worshiping Baal, which is a, a similar god to, to Dagon, trying to get Israel to turn away from Baal. And, and the prophets of Baal are on the mountain and they're cutting themselves. They're doing enchantments. They're doing all sorts of rituals. And yet Elijah begins to mock them. And he says, oh, maybe God's relieving himself. Maybe God, maybe Baal is, is taking a nap. Maybe Baal's on a vacation. You know, but he kind of pokes fun at them because Baal wasn't, Baal wasn't moving. He wasn't real. But I want to think about that. Are we much different in how we try to get our idols' attention? You say, whoa, I don't, I don't have any idols. Come election season, we are rah-rah for our political party, aren't we? We try to make all the money that we can. We are very, very uh, focused on consuming our entertainment, aren't we? We've got to be in front of the TV or in front of our device. We've got to make sure we binge this. We've got to make sure we watch that. If we've got this plans, we make sure that we don't miss those plans. We have our idols, don't we? And we may not cut ourselves and do enchantments, but we do things that make us look kind of silly when we chase after things that really don't benefit us, really don't add any substance to us. It's like when you sit down for dinner, if you eat a bag of candy, it might make you feel full, but it's not gonna make you, well, it might, it'll make you feel something, but you're not gonna feel full and nourished, right? Yeah, we go up and down the earth chasing after pleasure and power and we lose more than we gain. That's what idols do. They tear us down. They don't build us up. I thought it would be helpful to give a little background information about idol worship because I think we read the Old Testament, we read about idols and we think, why did they worship idols? Why, why, why did they ever start doing that? Um, idols have been around for thousands of years, originally being images that the, that the people agreed upon uh, represented the gods of that culture. Uh, most of the time, the gods were either celestial powers or forces of nature. Uh, to translate that, they were the sun, the moon, the stars, the wind, the rain, the, the, the forces of nature, natural disasters. Most of the time, the gods were these things that were out of our reach, out of our control, that represented things that we needed, represented things that people needed, uh, the, but, but they were the gods reduced down in size and substance to emphasize that they could be manipulated. See, adultery was, very, was really a complicated way of soothing one's conscience. It checked the box of paying homage to a God, a being beyond this world, but it always bent towards a self-centered lifestyle. And this is really the core of religion. Religion is about two things. Our need to worship something, but also our desire to control the gods so that they might guarantee us a better life. It's not hard to see how religion was conjured up. The early priests were stargazers. They were experts of nature. They were philosophers that observed the common struggles of the world. And they came up with these answers that uh, helped explain things. And that's why there was these idols for weather, idols for fertility, idols for the crops and things like that. Idols for love and relationships because they were trying to meet a need that everybody uh, agreed upon and, and, and shared. A pastor and scholar named Kevin DeYoung put together a list of reasons why adultery was so prolific in the ancient world. Um, and, and I wanna share that list with you. But, but basically, he, he explains adultery like this, that, it's, that it addressed a longing for both an understanding of what was beyond them and attempted control of what was most important to them. 
Now, if you, if you listen closely, that kind of sounds like a lot of church services. There's something out there that I don't understand, but I'd love to try to control them if I could. That's not Christianity. That's not faith in God. That's idolatry. And that's what it's always been. Here's a few things. He gives us nine reasons that I'll just go through really quickly. Idolatry, number one, it was a guaranteed. The formula was simple. You carve a God out of wood or stone and, 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 God, and they believe that God would enter that icon. God's in your midst and you can do things to get his attention. He sits there and listens to you. You can do chants, you can do oaths, you can do offerings and he always keeps his eyes on you because you're right there in front of him. But you know what really is at the heart of idol worship when you start thinking about it? Idol worship is not about the one that's being worshiped. It's about the worshiper, isn't it? People come to me all the time and they say, you know what, I think, I think, and, and not, I'm not being mean, and I know everybody's got opinions and churches about churches full of opinions, but it's funny how we talk about church sometimes because sometimes if we're not careful, we describe church like this. Well, this is what I think church should be about. If we're not careful, I think makes church more about us than it does God. Number two, idolatry was selfish. You scratch the God's back and he'll scratch yours. If you need food, if, if you need food, bring him a sacrifice. If you need something, you bring him something and he's gonna give you that something that you need. So it was very easy. Idolatry encouraged vain religious activity. Do what you like with your life, but show up on the holy day and offer an, an offering and you'll be just fine. It was convenient. Again, this sounds like church, doesn't it? In some circles. It was convenient. They're not hard to come by. You can access him at a certain place, certain time, show up, and if you just do your part, hey, he's got to come through for you. Again, adultery, it was normalized in the ancient world. Everybody did it. It's how women got pregnant. It's how crops grew. It's how armies conquered. It's how, it's how things, it's how the weather was, was on time or, or, or as you needed it to be. Idolatry was a normalized part of society. It was also logical. You, you see, idolatry was, very ba was based on, a, a, in one culture, country or culture, it was different than another because, uh, you know, hey, we're different than y'all. And that's why you had all these different gods and they all respected the different gods because everybody's different and you really just kind of need religion to be what you want it to be. So let's not be so dogmatic. Idolatry was very uh, pleasing to the senses. It appealed to, it was visually appealing. Uh, it, it was all about the show to make the people feel better about themselves. Idolatry was, indulg was indulgent. Uh, often when you would worship at these uh, pagan festivals, people would get drunk and they would do all sorts of lewd things. And that's why it was also sensual. Uh, there was all sorts of sexual acts that were done in these worship services. Now you can imagine, idolatry was very attractive. It was spirituality, but it, was, it, was, it, it didn't cost people much. It didn't ask for much. It was easy to do, easy to see, and uh, it guaranteed success, and it made you feel good, and it didn't offend many. And guess what? A lot of Christians want the same thing to be true about church, don't they? Don't we? We want a faith that gets us the stuff that we want and guarantees us success. That's the prosperity gospel. We want discipleship that's convenient. That's why people who go to church sometimes don't leave their homes. 
right? We want religion that's ritualistic. That's why everybody in today's world, if you ask them, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. And they, they, they tell you how they're a Christian. And it's completely different than the next person because Christianity has become this nominal religion where everybody kind of has their own version of it. And we all just kind of acknowledge it. And I'm not being mean. You go to somebody's funeral that they never went to church. They never served God. They never even trust. They never lived for Jesus. Yet somehow, someway, they were a Christian. We want a spirituality that encourages self-indulgence so we want christianity but we don't want it with the accountability we don't want it with the reality that some things are harmful some things are wrong some things are not good for you for others or for god we all want to follow god in a way that makes sense to others feels good to us and is easy to understand and here's why i think this is irrelevant for you and me today idolatry is still the greatest temptation to any would-be believer or professing christian you show me a greater temptation I don't think there is one. We are all tempted to reshape God in our image and redefine worship in a self-seeking, self-serving way. And I don't mean the style. I don't mean what do you sing and what do you dress. I mean, what is the message? What's the substance of why you are there? If it's self-seeking and self-serving, then that's not God at the center of your service. That's an idol. It's an idol. God will not share the throne of our hearts with idols. And this isn't just an Old Testament message. What is the New Testament message again and again and again? What did Jesus preach over and over and over again? He asked us, hey, where are you storing your treasure? What are you living for? He made it, he, he was so, he was so, you know, without any gray area, without any room to wiggle one way or the other when he made this statement. You cannot serve two masters. No one can. And in this instance, he's talking about God and money, but you could take out money and put anything. You cannot serve God and anything. You serve God or you serve the other. Why do you think Jesus preached such, such high-stake sermons like this? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Because what did Jesus, what does he say is our greatest temptation, our greatest weakness? Ourselves. I, the idols that I want to put first. And Jesus said, if you don't deny those idols, you will not come after me and it will cost you dearly. I love how John, John ends his little, his letter Little children, keep yourself from idols. John, he, he called us children because that's what we are. Be careful, be careful that you don't go after idols. An idol is anything that exalts I, my will, my demand, my opinion over God's. You know why Jesus in the New Testament preached so much about divesting yourself from power and from wealth? Because we, the more we keep to ourselves, the more susceptible we are to idols. That's why he preached, love God, love your neighbor, love, serve God, serve others, lay your life down for something greater than yourself. Now, we don't know if the Philistines learned that lesson or not, but we know Israel was getting taught the same lesson and we know that Israel's got another foot to drop in the lesson they're learning 
Flip over as we close, as we wrap up. Flip over to chapter 6, verse number 18 through 21. So here's, how, here's what, goes, what happens. The Philistines come to the conclusion that the ark is bad news. They tie it to some cattle and they let it loose. And they hope and pray that it doesn't turn around. Fortunately for them, the, ark, the, the cattle lead the ark across the, the Philistine border and it goes to a town called Bet Shemesh or Bet Shemesh. And here's what the scripture says. In, verse, uh, in first, um, Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, excuse me. He struck the men of Bet Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. So here comes the ark rolling into town on the back of these, uh, behind these cattle. And the people look at the ark and he struck them. So if you think he was just picking on the Philistines, no, these are Jews. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this holy God? To whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Keresh, of, of Kirjath, Jerem, saying the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. So God's presence comes back into the land with a bang. He made it known that he was not a trinket. He was not an idol. He was not a commodity. He was a king. You think, and you know, I don't, y'all know me. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace through faith. God's a merciful God. The judgment you and I deserve, he poured out on Jesus. What we, 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 we read about stuff like this in the Old Testament and we think, well, that's a little extreme. And it, it, it is extreme, but it's also because that's how helpless we are apart from Jesus. That's what we deserve. And, 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 but also, if we treat our faith and our relationship with God in some casual, flippant way, do we deserve anything better? And, and listen, I don't say this, I don't use this terminology lightly. God struck some people dead in the New Testament too, to make a point. Remember the, the, rich, the rich fool that Jesus told the story about? The rich fool who says, I've got, he says to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Soul, you have taken care of yourself. You have made I the center of your story. You have been successful. You are prosperous. You are well taken care of. Sit back, relax, and enjoy life. But who came knocking on the door that night? But God, this night your soul is required of you and then Whose will these things be? So is anyone that stores up treasure for themselves. So is anyone that serves the idol they see in the mirror and not God. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Now their sin wasn't that they didn't give to God. They gave a percentage to God. I bet they gave a pretty big percentage to God. But what did God require of them? All of it. The moral of the story is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. And you know why you and I are safe tonight and saved tonight? Because Jesus is our 
Savior. He is our shelter. He is our refuge. You and I have access to the very presence of God that others fell in the midst of, that others were struck down in the midst of. You and I have access to God because Jesus has made us holy. He has made us righteous. But should we take that privileged position lightly? I don't think so. Can we still fall victim of adultery? Yes, we can. The people ask, who is able to, to stand before this holy Lord God? If you, if you can, uh, flip over to Psalm 24. I just want to read this before we pray. We sang a song earlier that quotes this psalm. And I have to believe that this psalm is, is inspired by that refrain. Who can stand before a holy God? Psalm 24 is a psalm of David and it's really a psalm that asks the question, who can stand before a holy God? So David says, the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's in its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend to his holy hill? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is, Je this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O oh God. Clean hands, pure heart, seeking God's face. That's what God desires from us. And, 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 and isn't it true? That's what he deserves from us. So let's be honest with ourselves. Are we here for ourselves or are we here to worship and serve and honor God? That'll lead you in one direction or the other. Idolatry? If I'm here for me, why not worship idols? Why not serve me? Why not live for me? If I'm here for me and I'm gonna live today and die tomorrow, why not live it up? But I'm not here for me. And thankfully, I don't have to look forward to nothing or, 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 or a, a, a void of an eternity. I get to look forward to living in the presence of my holy God. So I'm living for him. I'm living because of him. What's the point of our life? Well, ask yourself the question, is your main motivator in believing your glory or God's glory? I hope it's more than just living a good life and having some success and making some memories. We may not, we may not fall over dead in this life, at least not before our time, but eternity is gonna reveal how serious we took this life and its purpose. And as uncomfortable as these stories are to navigate through, as difficult as it is to navigate these stories that don't always end with celebration and parties and joy and happiness, these stories are important because they reflect the hearts of people that are not that different than us. God is not an idol. God is a king. The question is, is he your king? Now we know what that king did for us. He sent his own son to die on a cross to make it very clear. He loves you, but he wants a relationship with you. But it's not on your terms. It's on his terms. You can know him and he can be your heavenly father. He can be your savior, but he'll always first and foremost be your king. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what is a sobering reminder of what our world is without you. 
what this life is without you leading us and guiding us and steering us in the right direction. God, we're all tempted to follow after idols. We're all tempted to follow after our own hopes and dreams and plans. Yet God, because of your good news and your grace, you save us from that dead in life. You save us from that bankrupt of a life. Father, help us to answer these questions. Are we motivated for our glory or yours? Are we living for you or ourselves? Help us to see that you're not an idol. You're not an object. You're not a commodity. You are a king and we are here to serve you. And we see how clearly you love us and what you've done for us. So may we respond accordingly and live a life that honors you. Who can ascend to your holy hill? Those that have clean hands and pure hearts and lift do not lift up their souls to idols. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.